0: The great economist John Maynard Keynes once wrote, of the foolish things a man thinking alone can come temporarily to believe. Fortunately, I did not have to think alone.
1: And neither do we. Welcome to a podcast about how ideas and theories come about and how they diffuse. We're a bunch of historians of economic thought, and this is our podcast, Ceteris, Never Paribus, where all other things are never equal.
0: Welcome to a new episode of Cetris Never Peribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast. Your host today is Reinhard Schumacher and my guest is Paul Dudenhefer. Paul is a professional writer and editor. He is well known among historians of economic thought because he was the copy editor of the journal History of Political Economy, or HOPE in short, for more than 15 years, until 2016. I guess some of our listeners will have benefited from his copy editing skills. Or they might have benefited from his writing workshop at the 2017 Conference on the History of Economic Society in Toronto. Currently, Paul is the managing editor of the journal Politics and Society. Paul has taught writing to graduate students and he has written a booklet titled Writing the Field Paper and Shop Market Paper, a holistic and practical guide for PhD students in economics. You can find Paul on his website www.pauldudenhefer.net, that is d-u-d-e-n-h-e-f-e-r, where you can also hire him to edit your paper. On his website, he also blogs occasionally about academic writing, mostly posts that are very interesting. After this introduction, it might already be obvious that the topic of today's episode will be writing, and I would not know a better qualified guest on this topic than Paul. So I'm very happy to sit down today in Berlin with Paul. Paul, welcome to Settler's Never Parables. Thank you, Reinhard. It's really wonderful to be here. Before we discuss writing in detail, let me ask you a brief question about yourself. How did you become a copy editor of Hope and what drew you into the history of economic thought?
1: Well, it was really just an accident. I was—I had recently moved to Durham, and I was looking for a job, and a job came open with Duke University Press as the managing editor of this journal called History of Political Economy, which I'd never heard of before. I applied for the job, I was interviewed, and then I was brought to campus to interview with Crawford Goodwin, who at the time was the editor of the journal, and a couple of days later they offered me the job. And so... You know, as I, I mean, at the time, I, I knew Adam Smith, I knew John Maynard Keynes, I knew John Stuart Mill. That was basically about it. Um, and so, over the years, uh, you know, it, it was weird because it, I, I didn't really think of it as my field. But over the time, it became my field, and it's a very important part of my life now.
0: Well, that is uh, great because I think the field benefited a lot from you. Let's get to writing now, and most of us are writing or have to write journal articles, so I want to focus a bit on articles, even though I think much of what we talk about applies to other forms of writing as well. So at the beginning, well, one might have an idea or thesis perhaps, and now we have to turn it into a paper. So let's start with the, the framing of the paper. The first paragraph, especially the first sentence, and sometimes the whole introduction, are often the hardest part. To write for many of us. But it is also the most important part since the introduction will set the scene for the uh, whole article. So how do you frame an article? What makes a good introduction and what should you avoid?
1: Well, the first thing you want to do is have, um, for, for, the, for academic articles at least, you want to have a thesis or argument that you're trying to make. But beyond that, um, you want to... Put your thesis in a context that will suggest to the reader why it's important or why he or she should care about what it is you're you're writing about. Um, So I think that's, that's the important thing to do. A lot of articles that I read that are in various stages of drafts, what's happening is the author has all this material and they're basically quoting a figure and then telling you what the figure just said. They quote the figure, they tell you what the figure just said. But there's no story that is bringing this all together. It's not quite clear what all this quoting and interpretation is about. And so that's what you want to establish in the beginning of the article. You want to establish what is it you're going to be arguing here? What, what is your thesis? What is your main point? Why are you going to tell me the things that you're going to tell me? And in addition to just stating a thesis, you want to put it in a context that will get people excited, that'll, that'll make people want to continue reading your paper. So I think that that's what you really need to do in the beginning of an article. Now, there are ways that you can do this, and a very classic way to do this is in a, a way that's very helpful to your reader is you can begin by reminding your reader what they already know. So establish some common ground you know, bring them into the discourse by saying, hey, this is what we know so far, okay? This is all familiar to you, let's get comfortable with this. So that's the first step. The second step you want to do is then complicate that common knowledge, okay? So, you know, this is what we know, this is something we don't know. And it's that this is something we don't know that really gets you into your paper. And then, of course, you want to respond to that complication with your thesis and um, what it is you're going to argue in the paper. So establish a common ground. Complicate the common ground by bringing in something we don't know, something that's unsure, something that's troubling, whatever it might be. Often this is signaled with a word like but or however or yet or something like that. And then that that opens room for you to state your argument and tell your reader what this paper is really about. I guess that also includes you have to make clear why the reader should care about what you're writing. yeah, that, that's what that's one of the things that you want to do in the beginning of the art now. By saying, make the reader care, there are, there are degrees of caring here. I'm not saying that you have to write an article that's going to change the face of Western civilization. That's not <laughs> what I'm saying. <laughs> what I'm saying is for for the group of scholars who are inclined to be interested in what you have to say, you need to let them know why what you're saying is important, why, why relatively speaking, it's something that they should care about. What are they going to get from reading this article? How is it going to enrich, or challenge, or add to, or overturn what is already considered to be a settled matter or what they might already think about a particular subject. And what I also get from that, and correct me if I'm wrong, you, you should very
0: quickly or early get to your main point. Set the common ground or shared knowledge, and then immediately introduce a problem. Like not continue writing about, I don't know, sometimes the introduction is about Basically, everything, but only at the end or even after the introduction, authors would state their main point. I think what you're arguing is get right through it. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So, you know, you want to state your main point sooner rather than later. I usually like to see the main uh, argument stated by the beginning of the third paragraph. Um, If it it gets to be later than that, um, I'm starting to wonder what's this paper about, where where is the author going, why is he telling me or she telling me what, what she's telling me. So yeah, you want to do that sooner rather than later. And my general, about as late as I want to see that, is the beginning of the third paragraph. So you can think of your opening paragraph as establishing common knowledge. You can think of your second paragraph as complicating that that um, common knowledge, and then you can think of your third paragraph as where you state your your thesis. Now, does a paper have to go exactly like that? Of course not. I mean, there's all kinds of, I mean, when you're talking about writing, you're not talking about an exact science. Um, lots of papers begin by stating their thesis right off the bat. One of the things I noticed when I was teaching writing to uh, PhD students in economics at Duke is is it's. I started noticing that Theoretical papers that introduced a new model tended to state that in the very first sentence. So it was very interesting. That seemed to be kind of the convention with those kind of papers. So, you know, you have to you know pay attention to what your relevant literature does because you're working in that tradition. You're working against and you're sort of working in that context. So, you know, pay attention to what people do. But yeah, generally speaking, you want to get to this sooner rather than later. And again, you know, I think the beginning of the third paragraph is about as late as you want to go. Now, can you be later? You can be later. Can you be earlier? Of course, you can be earlier. But, you know, that's about what you should be aiming for.
0: That sounds like a good rule of thumb, then. Another matter that today, most articles and books are published in English, and often historians growing thought, and I guess that applies to academics in general, English is not their mother tongue, it's not my mother tongue, so this also complicates matters because you write for an English-speaking audience and English might be different or the structure of the language from from your own mother tongue. So it's often difficult to write in English, so do you have any specific
1: advice for writing to what one might call an Anglo-American audience? Yeah, so I had a very instructive experience a few years ago when I went to talk to the Japanese Society about writing in English. And to prepare me, they had sent me an article written in the 1960s by a physicist who himself was teaching Japanese physicists how to write in English. And the article was interesting because it let me know the writing conventions that the Japanese have that are different from English conventions. And so what I what I told them was, for lack of a better term, I called it the Anglo-American tradition. And I tried to explain what the Anglo-American mind thinks a good article is. And some of the things that an Anglo-American mind thinks about when they think of a good article is, first of all, it has a single point. Okay, It doesn't have two or three. It has a single point. It has a single argument to make. You, the, the the article gets to the point quickly. So again, you know, you want, to, you want to state your main thesis sooner rather than later, and then you want to stick to the point. So you don't want to go off on tangents, you don't want to add digressions. I mean, this isn't the Wealth of Nations, you know, where you got the long digressions on silver and things like that. You want to stick to, that's not what you're writing, you want to stick to the point. And uh, so that th- those are the things that I think you need to keep in mind if you're trying to produce an article that someone trained in this tradition will, 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 that, that will strike him or her as a well-written article. Well, let me give you another example. So um, years ago, I was helping Crawford with a class, and it was a writing-intensive class, and the assignment that we were giving students was to write a thesis-driven essay, and we would tell them, Begin with your thesis, support your thesis. These were short papers, two and three pages long, so they didn't have a whole lot of time or room to go into lots of extraneous material. We said, look, just state the main point and support the main point. Well, we had a student in the class who was from France, and he would always give us these papers in which he would spend the first page, page and a half reviewing what seemed to be the entire body of Western ideas, right? I mean, Socrates and Aristotle and Kant and, you know. And we, we finally brought him in the office and said, what's going on here? I mean, we, you know, we, we're telling you we want you to begin with a thesis and then support the statement with a thesis. Because well, you know, in France, uh, that's not a good paper. I mean, we're taught that a good paper is one where you begin by just sort of bringing in all these important ideas from the Western tradition before you get down to your your own thesis. And that was a very instructive moment for me. I I was so steeped in the Anglo-American tradition, it never occurred to me that there were other kinds of models that were considered to be good writing. And so, again, this just sort of reinforces what I'm saying about this, what I'm calling this Anglo-American tradition, which tells you to have a main point, stake the main point early, stick to the main point. So, you know, if you're trying to get published in a French journal, you may want to take the French approach. You should certainly take a look at the articles that are being published in the journal and see what they do, and you try to do the same. But if you're trying to get published in an English language journal, and the editor is, you know, for lack of a better term, if the editor is of the Anglo-American mind, then you should think about having a single point, stating the point quickly, sticking to the point.
0: So I remember from the workshop that you did, or that I attended, and um, that you have argued for four clear principles in writing, and I think you made the same point in some of your blog posts. And I remember them because they are so neat and rather simple and at the same time they do improve the readability or the joy of reading a text quite a bit. So I will briefly list those four principles now and then I will ask you to explain them one by one. So the first one is make your main characters the grammatical subject of your sentence. The second principle is express key actions in verbs. The third one is begin sentences with old information. And the fourth, end sentences with new information. So let's start with the first one. Make your main characters the grammatical subject of your sentence. What does that mean and how do you do that?
1: Let me let me first say that these four principles, um, they're not mine. Um, they come from what I think is probably the best book on writing, um, you know, contemporary expository prose in English, and that is a book called Style, Lessons in Clarity and Grace. It's by Joseph Williams and Joseph Bizup, B-I-Z-U-P. And I think it's in its 12th or 13th edition. It may even be a later edition than that. Um, That's where these principles come from. We will put a link up on our website of the book. Okay, great. Wonderful. So make let's, let's take the first one. Make your main characters the grammatical subject you your sentence. So what you want to decide as the writer is, what is this sentence about? There's a rhetorician at Duke named George Gopin who also wrote an, wrote an excellent book on writing um, called Expectations, uh, Expectations Teaching Writing from the Reader's Perspective. Um, the way that George Gopin puts it is, whose story is this? Whose story is this? Whatever the answer is, make that person, place, or thing the grammatical subject of your sentence. Let me just give you an example. If I take down a biography of John Maynard Keynes, okay? Now, the biography is its about John Maynard Keynes. I would expect that pretty much anywhere I turn in that book, I can take a passage of 250, 300 words And I would expect that the grammatical subjects of most of the, not all, but most of the sentences in that passage are going to be Cain's. Why? Well, he's the subject of the book. He's the main character. So, you know, that's what you want to do. Whatever 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 you decide this sentence, this passage, this paragraph is about, that that person, place, or thing should be the grammatical subject of most or all of the sentences. So that's what that means. Make your main characters the grammatical subject of your sentence. Now, let's go to the second one. Express key actions and verbs. What this means is a lot of times, so one of the the hallmarks of academic writing and one of the reasons academic writing gets um, satirized so much is academics like to use what are called nominalizations. Nominalizations. And a nominalization is simply the noun form of a verb. So instead of saying, we assume X, you say, so, and and we assume X, assume is a verb, okay? The academic may say, we make the assumption X. Well, suddenly assumption is no, the key action to assume is, Not a verb in that second sentence. It's a noun. So that's what I mean. Whatever the key action is in a sentence, try to express it in a verb. Don't express it, generally speaking, again, not an exact science, don't express it in a nominalization, express it in a verb. And then um, three and four are really, I mean, when I, when I read these two principles. uh, I mean, it just really um, opened a, a, it made a lot of writing. I now suddenly understood why I couldn't follow a particular piece of writing. So you should think of a sentence as having two kinds of information, old information and new information. Now, what is old information? Old information is any word, concept, term, that the reader has already encountered in what he or she has read. Okay, that is old information. You want to begin sentences with old information. Why do you want to do that? Well, by beginning sentences with old information, something that the reader has already encountered in your writing, you make an immediate connection to what has just gone on before and that's how you create flow in your we talk about flow that's how you create flow in your writing you begin sentences with that old information now you so you want to if you want to begin sentences with old information then it just makes sense that you want to end sentences with new information what is new information well new information is is information that your reader has not encountered yet in in the text it's information that incident um, not incidentally, very importantly I should say, is information you want to emphasize. So, a lot of people think the beginning of a sentence is the place of greatest emphasis in a sentence. It's not, it's the end of a sentence. So, you wanna put new information, which by almost by definition is em- information you wanna emphasize at the end of your sentences. And I would say, and, and in his book George Gopin says this too, The biggest problem that most writers have is they fail to put important information at the ends of sentences. They put them in the middle of sentences. They put it at the beginning of sentences. They don't put it where it's most effectively placed, which is at the end of a sentence. Now, I'm saying the end of a sentence, but what I really mean is any place of what's known as full syntactic closure, Full syntactic closure. That means basically before a colon, before a semicolon, before a period. Not before a comma. Um, a comma is actually the only mark of punctuation whose function you really can't tell until you read past it. So not before a comma. Uh, you want to put important information before a colon, before a semicolon, before a period. And again, those principles come from excellent book by Joseph Williams and Joseph Bishop. Style, Lessons in Clarity and Grace. And I I recommend that book to anybody who has a piece of writing, has a draft, and they want to make it better. That book will help them do that.
0: So if I understand you correctly, what many people do is they would begin a sentence with new information and put the old information at the end of the sentence. Is that
1: like the common mistake? So people do that a lot. Um, People put new information uh, in maybe in the middle of a sentence. Sometimes a sentence doesn't have any new information, um, in which case it is a sentence that's really too short. A question that I get asked a lot is how long should a sentence be? And one way to answer that question is, a sentence should be long enough such that it contains at least one piece of new information. If you do not have a piece of new information if you have not gotten to a piece of new information in a sentence yet, you probably need to keep writing until you get to some new information. So um, it, it's a, it, it would be a little too complicated to explain just orally like we're doing here, but George Gopin has a great, great explanation of how long should a sentence be in relation to its old information and, and, and in particular, its new information. But yeah, so a a big problem is a lot of people will start sentences with new information and end sentences with old information. And um, that is where the flow of your writing starts to break down. Keep in mind that readers like to move from the familiar to the unfamiliar, the easy to the difficult, the old to the new that's what they like to do okay so that, that's another way to think about this this th- these two principles begin with old and with new is think about how readers generally like to experience someone's writing they, they really they really want to move from the old to the new the easy to the difficult the familiar to the unfamiliar that's what you should do for them
0: as I said I find those four principles rather neat and I've tried to to use them on my articles, and they they do improve it. It's often easier to to work through them after you've written your article because when you write something, you don't necessarily think about them. But
1: well, can I? That's yeah. a good point. So, as much as I like the Williams and Biz book on style, that's called Style, and the George Gopin book on Expectations, these are books that will help you after you have a draft. Okay, they're not. Uh, you're absolutely right. The the first step is just to get something down on paper. Okay? Don't yeah. So when you're at that stage, don't be thinking about, "Oh, is this old information? Is this new information? Who are my main?" Don't be thinking about that. Just get it on the page. Then you can go back and start making these decisions. Okay? Who's my main character here? Does that person, place, or thing appear in the grammatical subject of this sentence? No, well, let me revise the sentence so that that person, place, or thing does. That's the way that you should use these uh, these principles. You have made the point before that written texts
0: in economics and also in the history of economic thought are often rather dry, and one might say very abstract and technical, and you advocate to write in a more entertaining way to also think about that the reader wants to be entertained. It's not just that you give him just all the information, but you do it in an entertaining way. You might not shy away for using some humor, humorous remarks or anything
1: like that. So can you explain that a bit, and maybe are there easy ways to achieve this? So th- there was a novelist named John Gardner, and um, several years ago, he's, he's deceased now, but several years ago he wrote a book on uh, creative writing. And in the book, he said, details are the lifeblood of fiction. And I would say that details are the lifeblood of any kind of writing. And so one way that you can write entertainingly is to use details. In other words, be concrete rather than abstract. Uh, Deirdre McCluskey, in her book, Economical Writing, is very good on this point. That's one of her, I I don't know if you want to call them lessons or rules, but one of them is to be concrete, and she gives examples of what that looks like. That's how you write entertainingly. You, you you're you're concrete more than so you know. Deep place names, person names, um, specific names of objects um, rather than goods. Um, you know, say automobiles. Even better, rather than automobiles, say Chevrolets. Even better than that, say four-door Chevrolets. You know that's how you really write entertainingly. You you go for the concrete rather than the abstract, and that's uh, one way that you can do that. Now there are other ways too. I mean, right? And everybody knows what these are. You know, you can start with an anecdote. You can start with a quotation. You can start with a question. Um, The interrogative statement is used judiciously. is often a very effective way to enliven your writing and something that I don't see very often. But yeah, um, now you're fighting against things here, right? Because an academic article sounds a certain way. We're used to an academic article sounding a certain way and reading a certain way. So you know, you're know, you gonna be kind of bucking convention here. It's certainly something that I would like to see more people strive for, to write in a more entertaining way and, and to do that by being concrete, by being witty, by somehow doing something a little unusual or unexpected in the way that you open an article. Um, But, uh, you know, um, as soon as I say that, I know there's a lot of people listening who are trying to get published for the first time. They're probably writing for one or two particular people, and those one or two particular people expect the article or want the article or demand the article to be a certain way. And, you know, you're probably just going to have to give it to them. But keep this in your back pocket, because once you get established and you have more freedom, then, you know, see what you can do to, to, to reach a broader audience, to, to get people's attention more effectively at the beginning of your articles. Um, so, so they know that, hey, this might be something really unusual and fun to read, something a little different from what I'm used to.
0: Well, I do agree from my mother, my little experience, but I, I, you run sometimes into difficulties like this. Referee, I was in the conclusion. I started with a quotation which was obviously meant humorously, and he was like, "In this referee, already. Right? you can't mean the serious. You have written all this article. Why would you start in conclusion like this?" And I was like, "Everybody so far thought that it's really funny, so that's why I'm doing it." But apparently, readers or referees not necessarily expect that. And they they don't
1: expect humor there or wit, and then they won't see it. Yeah, I mean that that's one of the problems with academic writing in general, right? Is that it is a genre, okay? It it is it is a and what I mean by that is mm-hmm. it is it comes with its own conventions and expectations, and you're you're expected to um, to meet those conventions and expectations. Um, that still doesn't mean that there's not a place for style and for. You know, the, the word entertainment doesn't really sound right in this context, but for making your subject come to life by using details. Um, you know, we, mm-hmm. we talk a lot about the, the word that people started using five, six, seven years ago when they were talking about what they were writing about was story. Okay, mm-hmm. My story is about this. Your story, I think your story should be about this. I think your story is, you know. Well, you know, let's take that seriously, Okay, what makes for a good story? Well, a good story has a character, a character who faces some kind of conflict, and he or she works through that conflict. That's a good story, that's what makes a story. So look, if this is really a story, Mm -hmm. think about beginning here. Think about the person you're writing about if you're writing about a person. What did they really want? What were they trying to achieve? What obstacles were they trying to work through? and you know, approach it that way and see what happens. Um, you might bring this to life uh, to a degree that you never thought you would. Um, but yeah, so look, it's a tricky business. No one's gonna deny that. You can't just do whatever you want, want to do um, for better or for worse. Um, but uh, keep in mind that especially as you get more established, you can always try to make room for style and see what happens.
0: Are there any famous economists who are known to write entertainingly or wittingly?
1: Well, Does anybody come to mind? Well, Dietrich McCluskey comes to mind. <laughs> okay. You know, she's, uh, she's a very... Uh, Phil Morosky is a very entertain, entertaining writer. I found this one opening sentence. Uh, gosh, I wish I could remember it now. One of the things that I like to do when, when I taught graduate students is I like to look for unusual opening sentences to economics articles and present the sentence to the students and ask them, did this come from an economics article? Uh, And I remember I came across one by Paul Samuelson. It was in the American Economic Review and I can't remember exactly what it was, but it referred to a noose, it referred to a concatenation. It was just very clever, very concrete, Um, It called an image to mind. It was an unusual way to begin an economics article, but it was a way that caught my attention, and it made me want to continue reading.
0: I might try to find it, and then I will add it to this interview. And I did find the article by Samuelson. It was published in the American Economic Review in 1965. The opening sentence Paul was referring to reads, A rope will hang in the shape of a catenary because even a dumb rope knows that such a shape will minimize its center of gravity. The sentence also contains the formula of a catenary which I did not read. I will put up a link to the article on our website. Now back to the interview with Paul. One of the dangers of writing an article of a subject that you have a lot of knowledge about what you and I guess others have labeled the curse of knowledge which makes your article hard to understand for an audience that has not the same level of knowledge. Can you explain that a bit, what is meant by the curse of knowledge and how you avoid that?
1: Yeah, there's a, I think he's a psychiatrist at Harvard, a cognitive psychiatrist, I think at Harvard, named, named Stephen Pinker. A lot of people have heard of him. He's written a lot of popular treatments of big ideas. And he wrote a book a few years ago on writing Um, It was called A Sense of Style. And what he argued in the book, he he was basically trying to understand and explain why academic writing was so, as he put it, bad. And his main conclusion was, the the, the main reason why he thought academic writing failed to communicate with people is is what is uh, known as the curse of knowledge. Now, what is the curse of knowledge? The curse of knowledge is a cognitive bias that prohibits someone who knows something about a subject from understanding what it's like to not know something about that subject. So you just simply are incapable of putting yourself in the position of someone who knows little or nothing about your subject. So you just go ahead and write. As if anybody who reads what you've written is gonna understand the context, is gonna understand the background, is gonna understand the terms, is gonna know who the people are that you mention. So that's the curse of knowledge. You know, I see this all the time. Let me just give you an example. So I was reading someone's, uh, a draft of someone's paper just the other day, and towards the end of the first paragraph, it only then became clear that this person had in mind all along criminal defendants. So she was writing about something, and in writing about it, the population she had in mind was criminal defendants. That only became clear to me at the very end of the paragraph. That's sort of what I mean. So in her mind, all of this was clear. You know, the reader sort of would get this, but you don't get it. Now, how do you overcome the curse of knowledge? Well, the only way to overcome the curse of knowledge, I think, is to try your your writing out on readers who don't know as much as you do about your subject, which should be all readers, right? Because the only reason you write and share what you write is because you're, you're writing to inform people. You've learned something and you want to share what you've learned. So deliberately seek out people who probably are not familiar with what you're talking about. Ask them to read what it is you've written and see what their reaction is. But yeah, the curse of knowledge, it's, it's, a real, it's a real phenomenon, and I run into it all the time. Let me just give you an example. A couple of years ago, I went to the European Central Bank to talk to them about writing for a general audience. Now, what happened in that conversation with them? Well, a lot of people resisted what I was telling them because basically what I was telling them was this. You can't assume that your readers know the meanings of these terms that you use. Externality, for example, shock, um, retrenchment. You can't assume that people know what these terms mean, And, and you've got to write in a way that makes these terms clear to people. Now, they didn't want to hear that, okay? They didn't want to hear that. They wanted to just believe that anybody who read what they wrote would understand all these terms and concepts they were afflicted with the curse of knowledge. They simply were, in their case, not only unable, but unwilling to put themselves in the position of someone who may not know what these terms mean that they're using.
0: Okay, that gets us to another topic, namely the importance of feedback, to get feedback of your own work, probably or possibly before you submit it. And this is you alluded to it. One way of overcoming the curse of knowledge or becoming aware that you've fallen into the curse of knowledge. Maybe you want to elaborate a bit about the importance of
1: feedback. So I think everybody will agree that feedback is important. Um, I mean that's what we and that's how the papers are written, right? I mean you you present them at six, seven, eight conferences. You give them to six, seven, eight colleagues to read. Um, and and you get, you're getting feedback um, along the way at several points. Well, I think what really needs to be said is how you solicit feedback. So what the typical person will do is just give me a paper and say, read this and tell me what you think. Right? That's not helpful to the person who is being asked to read the paper. And um, you know, so what, what I suggest that people do is ask for two things. Ask for specific kinds of feedback and ask for specific kinds of feedback on certain parts of your paper, especially if it's a long paper. You know, give the reader some parameters, give the reader uh, an idea of what kind of what, what are you worried about, okay? What are you afraid that, that the reader is not going to get about this paper? So, a great way to get feedback is to just say, hey, could you read the introduction of my paper and tell me in your own words what the main, what you think the main argument is? Okay. Now, if they come back and say, well, I think the main argument is XYZ and the main argument is indeed XYZ, then you know you're on the right track. But if they come back and say, well, I think the main argument is A, and you're thinking, oh, my God, the main argument is actually B, then you know you might have a problem. And then the next step is to try to figure out, how the miscommunication happened. Why did that reader think that the main point of this paper was A, when you know that it's B? So try to get them to explain how did they reach that conclusion. So it's not only important to get feedback, it's important to ask for specific kinds of feedback. You know, make the task manageable for your reader and guide them to give you the kind of help that you're looking for. Another great question is to ask, again, of the introduction is, you know, read the introduction and tell me how my paper is different from other papers in the literature. That is, what, 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 what do you see as the main contribution of the paper? And again, if that reader says, well, I think the main contribution is X, and the main contribution in your mind is X, then you're on the right track. If the reader says, well, I think the main contribution is Y, And you're saying, oh my God, it's actually X, then you know you might have a problem. And again, you want to try to find out from that reader, okay, how did you get the impression that Y and not X was the main contribution of the paper? So it's not enough to just ask for feedback. You need to ask for specific kinds of feedback, make it easier for your reader, turn this into a manageable project, and also make it helpful to you. You know, you. you know, let them know what you want from them. Um, otherwise, you don't know what you're going to get. It may not be helpful.
0: Another way to get feedback, one could say, I remember that you told me that once, is um, read your paper out aloud. How is that helpful?
1: How is that helpful? Um, you, you experience, uh, so, so McCluskey tells you to do this in her book, Economical Writing, as well. And, and, and I, I think it's a great way to experience your writing in a way that, that you really can't if you just read it silently to yourself. So one of the things that you start to notice when you read your paper aloud is you become much more aware of the rhythm of your writing. You know, the ebb and flow of your sentences. Uh, do sentences seem to just end abruptly? Is there a pleasing cadence to the end of a paragraph, the end of a sentence, the end of a section? I think also it just in in reading your paper aloud, because you experience it differently, you're, you might see things, notice things that you don't notice if you just read it silently to yourself. So I, I'm a big proponent of reading one's paper aloud and paying attention to, you know, what what doesn't really sound right? What what sounds for? What sounds like? Oh, the sentence has been going been going on for way too long. Um, that's it's sort of a way of getting self feedback. But yeah, read, read your paper aloud. Of course, the other thing you can do is have someone else read your paper aloud while you listen, and you can have them as they're reading it aloud. Actually, react to what they're what they're reading, and this is something that people are already doing. There, there's a guy at Duke named Kerry Moskowitz, and he does this. He, get, he he will give the papers that his students write to a specialist in the subject of the paper. So let's say they're writing about the environment. He'll give their paper to someone who is knowledgeable about the environment. It could be a journalist who writes about environmental issues. It could be a professor in the Nicholas School of the Environment. It could be someone who works for the EPA. And they will record themselves reading that student's paper aloud and reacting to it aloud as they're reading it. And it's a very fascinating process. And what it does is it lets you as the writer see how a reader experiences your writing. And that's something that writers don't get enough of. They don't get enough of what it's like to actually read what I've written. And that's a great way to get that kind of perspective.
0: I've never let somebody else read my paper out loud I, sh- I might try that, That sounds uh, like... Let's pull like one out right now. <laughs> 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 and for the audience. So, (laughs) one one last issue I I want to address today, and you already alluded to it just a few minutes ago, is writing for a general audience. So as scholars, we often write for peers, we publish in specialized journals, but sometimes we want or we have to address a wider audience, maybe in a blog post, maybe in a newspaper article, maybe in a presentation for, for a more general audience. What is the main difference when you write for a general audience as opposed to writing for your scientific peers and is there any advice how best to address a general audience?
1: Yeah. So, so the first thing that, that usually comes to mind is what do you do about technical terms and, and certainly when you write for a general audience you're going to have to define technical terms. You can't assume that your audience knows what these terms mean, that's one thing. But let's get back to that first principle of clear writing that we talked about um, earlier in the podcast, which was make your main characters the grammatical subjects of your sentences. Now, back then I I said that your main character can be a person, place, or thing, and that's true. Your main character can be a person, place, or thing, okay? But people like to read about people. They like, well, let me say this. People like to read about flesh and blood characters Mostly people. Okay, so um, try when you write for a general audience. When when I rewrite technical pieces for a general audience, one of the first things I try to do is have my um, subjects be flesh and blood characters. Okay, so what does that look like? Well, let's let's say it's about some aspect of macroeconomic policy. Well, instead of macroeconomics or macroeconomic policy being the grammatical subject of the sentence. Let's try to make macroeconomists the grammatical subject of the sentence. All right, let's have a person as the grammatical subject of the sentence. Let's have a person who is actually doing something. That's another thing you can do to write for a general audience. And and the other thing is, so let's go to the fourth principle of clear writing, which was end sentences with new information. So one of the problems that a lot of technical writing has is sentences are often overloaded with new information, okay? There's way too much new information in a particular sentence. And when you write for a general audience, you usually have to you you have to space out the new information much more widely than you might do for a technical audience. You have to let things unfold a lot more slowly. You often have to use more language, okay? You can't let a single term stand for an idea that um, you, you can't let a single term do too much work. You might have to use more language to explain what's going on. And uh, it's it's not easy to do. And believe me, I've seen it. Academics will resist this. Uh, that brings me to something that I'm I, just now remembered and this is the first thing I told the the macroeconomists of the European Central Bank when they wanted me to speak to them about writing for a general audience the first thing I told them was you've got to want to write for a general audience that's number 1 if you don't want to write for a general audience if you don't want to do what you have to do in order to communicate with a general audience then this is going to be all for naught and you know writing for a general audience means you can't fall back on your tried and true writing habits you're going to have to write differently. You're going to have to let things unfold a lot more slowly. You're going to have to be very careful about the terms you use. You're going to have to understand and assume that your audience knows a lot less about the subject than you think he or she does. Uh, those are things that you have to do when you write for a general audience. And especially when you write for a general audience, be concrete rather than abstract. All right? the more The more detail you can go into, the better give them an image give them a picture let them see and clearly in their minds what it is you're talking about so yeah when you're writing when you're writing for a general audience be more concrete rather than abstract again goods is abstract automobiles is more concrete even more concrete and better is chevrolet's even more concrete is that or four door chevrolet's And on and on and on. So um, those are some of the things that you need to to do if you want to write successfully for a general audience. Now, don't overlook this one thing. If you're writing for a general audience, you want to try your writing out on a member of the general audience. Don't give it to your fellow economist down the hall, okay, because they're not going to know. Give it to someone who is truly a member of the audience you're trying to communicate with and see if they can understand what you're writing, what you're trying to say. And if they can, you're on the right track. If they can't, you've still got some work to do. I already mentioned
0: in the introduction that you've written a short book. I think it's about 100 pages with the title Writing the Field Paper and Job Market Paper, a Holistic and Practical Guide for PhD Students in Economics. Apart from that, you mentioned a few books throughout this um, interview. Can you recommend any other books for our listeners that might help them with writing or from which they might benefit? And we will put up links to all the books mentioned on our homepage.
1: Yeah, so, so uh, let me just say something about the, the booklet that I wrote. Um, I wrote this for the students I was teaching in the PhD program in economics at Duke. And it, it's really kind of a two-part book. The first part of the book is about writing. And I go over the four principles, make your main characters a grammatical subjects, use verbs rather than nominalizations, begin sentences with old information, end sentences with new information. I then also will use the way economists actually write to show them how they should write. So it's very much a descriptive guide to writing. The second half of the book is about, this is where the holistic from the title comes in. The second part of the book is the habits and mindset that I think a graduate student needs to adopt if they're gonna succeed in graduate school. So one of the things I would tell my students is, you need to start thinking of yourself as an economist. Don't think of yourself as just a graduate student. Start right now thinking of yourself as an economist. I am an economist who is interested in monetary policy. That's how, or I am an economist who is interested in Adam Smith, or I'm an economist who's interested in taxation, or I'm an economist who's interested in education. That's what you need to start thinking. So it it involves an identity change, you're developing a particular identity for yourself. And there are other things to it as well, but that gives you a sort of a flavor for the book. Now, other books uh, that I would, would recommend, I've mentioned some of them already. One is Style, Lessons in Clarity and Grace by Joseph Williams and Joseph Bizup, B-I-Z-U-P. Another book that is uh, very similar to that book, but a little longer and a little more complicated is Expectations, Teaching Writing from the Reader's Perspective, and that's by George Gopin. And George Gopin is a rhetorician at uh, Duke University. Now, um, both of those books are excellent for what to do with the draft. Okay, it's, they're not great for generating a draft. I don't think um, they're really helpful once you have a draft. But boy, once you have a draft, those books are really helpful. Now, other things that I think you should you should read. Um, so I mentioned Steven Pinker earlier. He came out with a book on writing and he published in the Chronicle of Higher Education in September of 2014, a condensed version of that book with the title, uh, Why Academic Writing Stinks or something like that. Um, uh, I'm not saying that it does, the title was just devised, I'm sure, to get people to read the article, um, hence the importance of a good title. But um, I would read that article, and because what he does in that article, he talks about the curse of knowledge, which I mentioned earlier. He also talks about something that is known as the classic style. And uh, the classic style is a particular way of writing that is very different from the academic style, but it's the kind of style that invites the the uh, immediacy and concreteness that i mentioned earlier Um, so so the stephen pinker article in the chronicle of higher education i would recommend that one and then I would also recommend uh, Deirdre McCluskey's economical writing. She was influenced by Joseph Williams. They were together at Chicago at one time, um, I believe. And so uh, a lot of what she says you can find in Williams and Bizip and also in Gopin. She also makes some really interesting points. I mean, one of the things she says is that one reason why she thinks her fellow economists write so badly is they don't read anything. They don't read any good writing. You know, she says, look at the bookshelf of a typical economist. There's no George Eliot on that bookshelf. There's no George Orwell on that bookshelf. There's no Herman Melville on that bookshelf. Um, so she says, you know, if you want to become a good writer, the, the, the way to do that is to read good writing and read a lot of it. And certainly any creative writer will tell you that. Um, anyone will tell you that. So those are the books uh, and, and resources that I, that I recommend. Well, as I said, we
0: will put links to all of them on our homepage, ceterisneverparibus.net and uh, we will also link to Paul's homepage, which I urge listeners to check out, especially his blog. He has some nice blog pieces about single topics and I sincerely hope he will blog more regularly in the future. Paul, it has been a pleasure to talk
1: to you today. Reinhardt, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode enough to come back for more. The featured music is called Knowing Nothing by Midair Machine, and our intro features Paul Krugman at his Nobel Prize banquet speech in 2008. Thank you to Noble Media AB for giving us the permission to use the audio. Please find the link to the song and Krugman's speech, along with more information on each episode, on our website, ceterisneverparabus.net. Follow us on Twitter, Parabus, and listen to more episodes on iTunes or your favourite podcast app.